What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministry Podcast. Now, we're starting a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, I gave you plenty of time to get there. And um, I'm really excited about this series. This is a significant moment in human history. A lot of people, even if they're not Christians, they are fascinated by the Sermon on the Mount. What's really unique is this Sermon on the Mount. I love that Jesus actually delivered this on a mountain. If you know the Old Testament, uh, Moses brought forth the, old, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, from Mount Sinai. And so this is very significant, very symbolic that Jesus now offers this new covenant, this new life that could be found only in him, and he does it on a mountain as well. He is saying, I have come to fulfill the law, and it's just so unique he does it on a mountain. And it's really the first time Jesus lays forth what his kingdom looks like and actually who is invited. Now, before we jump into this, I'm going to continue to say this throughout the series. Sermon on the Mount is the most misinterpreted and misunderstood passage, I would say, in the entire Bible. My problem that I have with most people and how they interpret this is if you interpret the Sermon on the Mount to where the hopeless are even more hopeless and the prideful come away with even more pride, you teach this sermon wrong. Jesus here, it looks like this unattainable goals. It looks like this life that none of us have been able to live. But if we read it correctly, it actually gives us so much hope. And it's not what you expect. Religious people, those who love to follow, who are legalistic, can quickly take this text and make you feel like you'll never be good enough. You're never going to be satisfied. But that is simply not the case. And I think the way Jesus starts this out is of utmost importance. I really want to get in your head that the Sermon on the Mount is not what you expect. So uh, maybe this will help you remember. So I actually went to the Sermon where the Mount was, uh, I went to the Mount where the Sermon was delivered a couple years ago, and uh, I went with a group of 100 people, and it, this is like, this story is literally, um, it's all about don't, ex- like, it's just completely not what you would expect at all. So we went, and I was with the choir. So I was literally the only person in this 100-person choir who was not in the choir. So I was the video guy, so I got to go, and, and I, you guys, have, it's like that movie, what's that movie called, Shelby, those aca people, you know, acapella people, like, everything's aca awesome, pitch perfect. Like, I was with just older pitch perfect people. Just think of that. They were older, but it's most definitely pitch perfect. Like they would like see a flower and then they'd get a, a quartet together and talk about the beauty of that flower. They would like, you know, do a mixtape version of the beauty of that flower. And so these were the people I was with. So anytime we went to a significant place, they started singing. And I think that's great, but I don't do that. And so I would like, <laughs> and I went and I would go find something else and I would film something, get some B-roll or whatever. That was just my MO. And then, I'm not joking you, um, I'm really going to date myself in a very peculiar stage of life, but who's ever seen the Even Stevens movie? This will land great for the eight of you. Now, for the Even Stevens movie, if you remember, Donnie, is that the older brother's name? I thought of it like five minutes before preaching the sermon, so I think his name's Donnie. But Donnie has this moment where he is on the island, they think it's deserted, but then he sees one of his old high school buddies. Remember? And he's like, What? And he thinks he sees the high school buddies. They all say he's crazy. I had this moment. So I'm here at the Sermon on the Mount. They're singing Aka awesomely. And I am here trying to get some B-roll. And so every time when I, I was vlogging, so I got the camera out. Every time before I vlog, I always like make sure to see if anybody make fun of me. You know, like who's, who's going to make fun of me? Okay, okay. So as I was doing my take before talking to the camera, I see my mentor, 
my professor, the, the dean of Christian studies from the California Baptist University, walking like right by me. And I'm like, what is happening? I knew I shouldn't have had the ice cream last night. You know, and so I was like, did a double take. I'm like, I'm literally on the other side of the planet. And I'm seeing the one guy I wish was here because I have questions, you know? And so Dr. Morgan was like, Trey? And I was like, Dr. Morgan? And it was this beautiful moment. I have it on camera. That's the glorious part of it all. But I'm like, why are you here? Well, I mean, I know you're a Christian, so I get it. But like the timing of that was incredible. So I, I got rid of my pitch perfect crowd and I hung out with my professor the rest. It was phenomenal. Literally, that story was only to tell you, just, you're gonna, don't, the things will happen that you don't think will happen. And in this text, you think you have the whole thing assumed. That was a really bad pastor segue, but I just wanted to share the story. But you think you have the whole thing figured out, and then something really is thrown your way. And I might honestly confuse you a little bit today, but I think it'll honestly make sense if we come here with an open mind. So verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him again in this day. The teachers would sit while the audience would stand. I'm still trying to pitch that to you. Now, then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely, uh, and, and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I imagine many of you have heard a sermon on this before, and I want us to remember the context. In order to understand Matthew chapter 5, you have to know Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, we talked about last week, Jesus is now saying, I've done it all, now I'm saying the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is available to you now, okay? That's very important. So when he says that, he gets his disciples together, he says, hey, follow me. They stop fishing and they start fishing for men, right? We talked about this last week. I know you forgot the whole thing, so did I. But now, what does he do? He goes to cities and he heals people. He, he, he brings sight to the blind. He heals the lame. He's starting to help those who are the outcasts of society. And he says, come to me, I will help you. And now think of this, his crowd of people that are following Jesus up on this mountain are people who are rejects, people who, are, who were ill, people who were social outcasts and disciples. And he is now delivering this word. And he, we, this is just so important. For us to remember, he's speaking to people who feel like the kingdom of God would never come to them. And I imagine some of us here think the same about ourselves as well. Now, this word blessed is markarios. Want to say that with me? Markarios. Nobody. Fantastic. Unless you whispered, which is weird. Now, Markarios means blessed or happy or congratulations. I've actually was fascinated in studying it this week. It's not necessarily referring to blessings from God. It's just to show that you as a human are blessed. When somebody else blesses you, gives you a gift, that's happier you. It's usually used as a salutation, like um, congratulations, nice to see you again. 
That's what this kind of markarios, this blessed are you. So Jesus is saying, oh, hello, everybody. You're happy. Congratulations. But what's fascinating about this context is he is congratulating people who have never been congratulated about anything their entire life. We have to know that in context. Here's the thesis for today's message. This is point number one. Here, guys, I, I'm telling you, you might not have ever heard this, but hear me out. Jesus isn't offering instructions for the steadfast. Jesus is offering invitations to the outcast. If we don't understand that, this is foundational in understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If we think this is a list that we must attain, that we must do in order to be acceptable in the eyes of God, we have missed the train the whole time. And then when we see later on in these passages talking about anger, we'll realize there's been times where, where I've been angry. I'm never going to be accepted in the kingdom of God. You can quickly turn this into a list to follow and you can get to heaven by what you do if you misinterpret these, what many call the Beatitudes. Now, what if some people, maybe you've heard it in sermons, and honestly, I've wrestled with it this week because I've heard several sermons throughout my life I now believe interpreted wrongly. Now, give me the benefit of the doubt. Let's work through this together. But some people see this as virtues to follow. They look at this as a list. You need to be like this. You need to be poor in spirit. But I would argue, actually, in the context of what it means to be poor in spirit, does not actually talking about what we think. And so these aren't necessarily uh, virtues that we must follow. However, I do believe there are some in here that would be virtues. Should we all be merciful? Yes. But I don't think that's the context for this message. Now, some other people see these Beatitudes as timeless truths. Okay, if you do this, you will always be blessed. So a lot of people, but think about this. Let's use the one merciful again. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Is that a timeless truth? I don't think so because I know people who are merciful and they get walked on and they are never shown mercy back, right? Now they will in heaven, but it's not a timeless truth to apply here and now or else you will grow quickly discouraged because you're going to be offering mercy to people who will always take advantage of you. So what does this mean? I argue this isn't a checklist we can mark off and declare if we're incredible Christians. I think this is actually to those who are hopeless, he brings hope. To those who have pride, he humbles them in verses 1 through 12. And I honestly think any interpretation that brings hope to the hopeless is probably a correct interpretation because that is the heart of the gospel message. Amen? Are you hopeless this morning? Jesus is here to bring you hope. He loves you. He cares for you. There's nobody too far gone. So let's look at some of these even just to prove. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, should we be peacemakers? People say, oh, it, this should be a list. Shouldn't we be peacemakers? Yes, in fact, we're going to do a whole series down the road about peacemaking, how to make relationships work well. Honestly, that's like marriage 101, amen? Peacemaking, you know, don't fight every single battle, right? Um, but I don't think this is what Jesus meant. What did the first century Jew feel about this phrase, peacemaker? Um, there is a book in the, I think it's called The Eyes of the Rabbi, and it's actually learning, okay, the Sermon on the Mount is so misinterpreted because we take these phrases and interpret them in the 21st century when we have to take these phrases and interpret them as if we were a first century Jew. When the first century Jew heard peacemaker, they were the people who were the ultimate outcast. Nobody liked a peacemaker. Why? 
During this time, Rome was oppressing Jerusalem, all of Israel, right? And the peacemakers were those who were Jewish, but who were also trying to make Rome happy to maybe kind of climb the ranks, but they didn't tell the Jews that they hated them either. They were trying to be on both sides. And you and I both know those who try to be on both sides wind up not being on any side at all. And so the peacemaker in this context is actually the person that nobody liked. The peacemaker felt like they weren't a part of any family, even though that's exactly what they longed for. They longed to be in a family, but they went about it the wrong way. And Jesus is saying, you know, even you, I think he's seeing a crowd of people and he's looking towards the peacemakers. He says, hey, peacemakers, in my kingdom, you're my child. You're a child of God. It's so cool. It's an invitation to the outcast, not instructions for the steadfast. Okay, usually I'm like, that was good rhyming, guys. Like, this is one of the best points I've had. Okay. Now, blessed are those who are persecuted. Let's look at the next one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Oh, that's so good. And I used to read this as like, God, I want to I hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And I'm going to read your word. I remember reading this in seventh grade and being so inspired by this and saying, yes, I'm going to be persecuted and everybody, this is going to be great. And so I would go to my seventh grade class and I'd tell them, Jesus loves you. And then they would say I was stupid. I'm like, God, thank you. You know, I'm persecuted for your name's sake. That's not the context at all. Persecution, this is with the disciples. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, who just let down their nets. Their fathers were, were angry at them. You're not going to make a living. You're going to walk around with a guy who's also homeless. This is not a good strategy. And they're getting persecuted because the Pharisees are angry. By the way, Pharisees wind up killing Jesus. So imagine how the disciples, they felt this pressure as well. And he was encouraging them. He says, okay, I know by following me, you feel like an outcast because you are. But the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's going to be Okay. It's an invitation to the outcasts. It's okay. Follow me, and I will give you rest. So here, as we look at the rest, we have created so many ways to determine if God loves or hates us. But that's always antithetical to the gospel. That is not how it is. We can't define, okay, these people God loves. These people God hates. And when we look at this, we can say, oh, we need to be people who mourn because that's who God loves. That is incorrect, okay? Okay. So what are some false markers of assurance that you and I have? What are some ways we think, yes, because I do this, God loves me. And in this culture, in this context, people define God's love for them, not because God loved them, but because they thought they were lovable or not lovable. So point number two, don't mistake your condition as your hope for admission. Some people said, okay, the circumstance I'm in, because I am rich, God loves me. Look, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this is interesting. There's two ways to say poor in the Greek. Number one is living paycheck to paycheck. That is a certain Greek word. But the other one, this one used in this context, is on the brink of absolute starvation. So it kind of seems like an oxymoron. Jesus says, blessed are those who are so starving, you might pass out before I'm even done delivering this message. Happy are you. Congratulations. They're thinking, what? Congratulations? I can't stand being poor. Now, should we be poor in spirit? If you're translating this as humility, yes, we need more people who are poor in spirit. And to be honest, some of my heroes in the faith have interpreted it this way, and they say, you know, your hope isn't in having anything. Just be humble. Yes and amen. But I think we can 
If we misunderstand the context, we can think Jesus is telling us to be poor, to be miserable, and to live on the brink of starvation. And if you do that in this lifetime, you will be happy. I don't think that's what God... I don't think God is commanding you to become poor. But he is saying, if you are poor, I love you still. Why? What was Jesus saying to them? Jesus was confronting the Jewish narrative in the first century. Was they believed, if you were rich, God loved you. If you were poor... God despised you. It's funny because, you know, we, we grew up reading the Bible, so we always think the rich are the bad ones and the poor are the good ones. But we have to remember the Jews, they're like, no way. Because if God truly loves me, he would give me everything that I want, not just what I need. So Jesus is saying congratulations to those who are just poor, both spiritually and physically, because the world has counted you out. He's saying, no, happy are you, congratulations, because my kingdom that I'm offering is open to you as well. I think this is good. The poor convinced themselves their condition made them of absolute no value and there would be no way a king, let alone a normal person, would want to bring them into the fold. So this was a hopeful message. Jesus was not saying, this is important, Jesus was not saying because you were poor, you are saved. Jesus was saying even though you're poor, you can be saved. See, I hope that, that's a very important distinction. We can quickly make this, oh, I need to be poor so I can be, no, 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 no. It's that even though, guys, there is no condition that you're in that has left you from the love of God. God loves you no matter what you've been, where you've been, what you've done, what you're going to do, amen? That's what we have to see here. Blessed are those, let's look at the next one. Blessed are those who mourn for they will, notice the future tense, for they will be comforted. Should we mourn? At times, yes. In fact, some of my um, some friends of mine say our worship services need to have a little bit more um, sorrow in some of the songs. Not everything should be happy, and I think that's true. Read the Psalms. Sometimes when we're singing to God, it's like God, we don't like this. Like my child is ill, or this person died. I'm not happy right now, so I'm just going to lift up my heart to you. I think that is helpful, but you also have text after text in the Bible that says to count it all joy. There's text out the Bible that says to have a heart of gratitude. So here, mourning, I think we should mourn, but what is Jesus actually saying here? He is looking at a crowd who can't think of anything but mourning because their life is miserable. This is hard for us as Americans because we think life is miserable when the Wi-Fi is broken, right? But in this crowd, they're like, literally, I don't have anything. I am poor and I just lost my son, which was my only security for financial future. I'm mourning right now. How can you say congratulations to say congratulations, those who mourn, because I even have a plan for you. Just because you've lost everything doesn't mean I have lost you and I haven't forgotten you. The sad have convinced themselves that they would never have hope. Dallas Willard summarizes this section by saying, whatever the point of the Beatitudes, it cannot be that they state conditions that guarantee God's approval, salvation, or blessing. Oh, I love that. So just because you're poor doesn't necessarily mean that God loves you. And just because you're rich doesn't mean that God hates you. And vice versa. God gives different conditions. Just because you lost a loved one prematurely doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. Okay? So there's no condition that says, okay, this means God loves me, this means he doesn't. He's saying, no, I love everyone, even the worst situations. I'm here to tell you the kingdom is open to you. Now the next thing, don't mistake your demeanor as your hope and redeemer. I'm on a roll this morning, guys. Don't mistake your demeanor. How do you do that, Trey? Thesaurus.com. Okay. 
Because I did, okay, anyways. <laughs> Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> I love this. Should we be humble? Yeah. I don't think Jesus is saying that this is how you make it to heaven. But I do believe, I mean, if you want to apply this as a virtue, we need to be humble. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus is the ultimate example of humility and we need to follow him. We need to count others more significant than ourselves. But again, we need to read this in the context of an invitation to the outcast, not instructions to the steadfast. Because we can be, if we're not careful, we can think God saves us because we're just so stinking humble. The person who says they're humble is not humble. Amen? Your, your confidence is not in the fact that you're bowing. Your confidence is in the, ba- in the fact of who you're bowing to. So what was Jesus saying then? He's saying, in this time, people who were humble, these were the gentle that always got taken advantage of. These were those who saw opportunities come and pass because they were too afraid to step up and speak out and take it for themselves. I'd imagine in this context, a lot of the women really identified with this because they were in a culture where they said, you cannot talk. You cannot take what you think is yours. You're lucky to even be here as a servant. Now, I know we don't have everything perfect for you ladies, but I think this is a better time to live in than back then. Amen? Okay. I'm glad I have three girls now. (laughs) Okay. Now, see, they feared every blessing would pass them by, and Jesus says, don't worry. I know you're humble. I know you feel like it's going to pass you by. I won't forget you. It's here and it's yours right now. I'm going to throw it in your face because you're going to want somebody else to take it. It's yours. You agree with me yet? I don't care. No. Blessed are those who, I do care. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Should we hunger after God? Again, these sermons, you can say, hunger after him. Yes, you should hunger after God. But what is he saying here possibly? I actually think Jesus is saying These are the people who thirsted for revenge. Let's say a child of theirs was murdered. They were people who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They were Liam Neeson in the first century. Okay? They made 18 movies called Taken. Okay? These are the people, they were just constantly thinking, how can God care for me? How... They were so caught up and writing was wrong, but they recognized they can never write all the wrongs. And Jesus said, those who feel depressed and discouraged because you can't make everything right, guess what? I'm going to make everything right for you. God is the one who takes revenge. See, they feared they had too much anger in their heart for God to love them. God says, "Uh uh-uh, even my love is open to you. Doesn't this just make this understanding of the Beatitudes so much more grace-filled and enjoyable? Amen. Okay. Blessed are the pure in heart. Should we be pure in heart? Yes. And again, maybe you can preach it that way, but I don't think that's necessarily the point Jesus is making here. I read in a lot of contexts, people were saying this phrase pure in heart were actually those who were perfectionists. Actually, those people who found error in everything they did and everywhere they went. Oh, that's not, oh, those lights are a little bit off. There's one light, there really is. There's one light bulb that's off right now. You're all like, which one? Some of you ones in this room, Enneagram, you're so bothered right now. Um, my beautiful wife, she is a perfectionist and I love her for it. But for them, the pure in heart, I think when Jesus was looking at his crowd, some of them, nothing was ever good enough for them. And by the way, that also means they will never be good enough either. Jesus is saying, for those who feel like they'll never be good enough, even the kingdom of God is yours as well. I think that's cool. I think it's really cool. 
Don't mistake your demeanor as your hope and redeemer. You are not saved because you have humility. You are not saved because you're mourning. You are not saved because you're just so stinking righteous. You're saved because of the blood of Christ, amen, and that he resurrected. That's your confidence. That's your security. Dallas Willard says again here, here we have full-blown, if not salvation by works, then possibly salvation by attitude. Is your confidence in the goodness of God because you are so humble or because Jesus is so loving? Your assurance is based off of him rather than based off of you. All right, but people will rebuttal because it says, um, blessed are the happy, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And you're thinking, I'm mourning right now and I am not comforted. I don't believe Jesus is speaking the truth here because I have been asking him to give me comfort and yet I am continuing to mourn and I don't feel any comfort. Well, here is the last point we have to understand. Jesus is promising peace in the midst of pain and a hope in the midst of hurt. See, other religions can say, if you follow this whatever, everything will be better for you. That is actually not what Jesus is saying here and I think it's very helpful for us to remember. He's offering hope, but he's also realistic. Because guess what? We're not in heaven yet. So notice this language here. It's present tense, but also future tense. In the first, the first and the last, it says the kingdom is yours. But the middle six actually says the kingdom will be yours. And that's the tension we live in. When we believe in Jesus, we do get a part of the kingdom now, but it's not fully recognized. When we go to heaven, when we, when we die and go um, and, and meet Jesus, then all of those things, there will be no tears, there will be no crying or mourning, right? But we are in this weird tension in the middle. America, we have this terrible concept that our happiness will only increase throughout our life if we're doing our life correctly. We think if I follow, if we, can, we bring this into Christianity, if I just follow Jesus, my life will, the best is always yet to come. I don't necessarily adhere to that. Because I don't know, I've seen some amazing Christians that have gone through some terrible experiences. Do they have peace? Yes. But I promise you, they still wish they had their loved one here, right? They still wish they were able to walk. There's still some pain they have to deal with. We have this really bad theology where I think if we're stagnant, if we're not growing, that must mean we're disobedient. And I think Jesus offers that tension of no, actually, you can still actually follow me and love me and you might still lose everything on this side of heaven. I actually think that's really encouraging for those, again, I keep mentioning loss of a loved one, those who have chronic pain to the single mother who has to bear financial burdens. These people, we, can, we need to be careful and just promising, you're going to be happy. I love how Jesus says, yes, there is a sense by which you are happy, but your honest satisfaction will be in heaven. Does that make sense? So I think when Jesus was delivering this message, he saw a crowd that was in pain, and Jesus wasn't ignoring that pain. I love that we have a God who cares about what you're going through right now. I think that's super encouraging. So it says, listen, believer, you will be comforted. Maybe you don't feel it 100% right now, but you're going to be comforted. You will be filled. There will be this ultimate satisfaction you will be shown mercy. You will see God. These are great promises for us. Now let's wrap this up. Remember, Jesus here, I believe, isn't offering instructions for the steadfast, but he's offering invitations to the outcasts. 
And what we're going to see here, especially in verses 1 through 20, Jesus is not offering a way of life yet. He is offering a way to life. Before he goes to instruction, he goes first with invitation. And if we read all of this, oh, don't be angry, don't do this, and we don't recognize our identity in Christ and the grace that God has for us, these can quickly become legalistic and will really lead us to all sorts of depression. So I want to make sure this is clear. There is nothing you've ever done that makes the kingdom of God unavailable to you now. You can be saved no matter what you've done. I love that. So here's some application. Number one, we need to remember that God loves us. Some of you in this room are like, yes, but I've been going through this addiction, and I prayed all the prayers, but I keep going back to this addiction. God loves you, has a plan for you, and he still has grace in your situation. Some of you, like, I've never really actually believed. I've never taken the step of obedience. I've never actually asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior because I feel like I need to get my life together. That will never happen okay? You're a, you're a terrible person. You'll always be a terrible... No, that honestly what you need is to come to him because grace will get you further than guilt ever could. I absolutely promise you of that. Absolutely. Remember that our past doesn't disqualify us or make us unworthy, but here's what I think a lot of us in application as we read this. We need to remember that God loves the outcast of today's society. Who are the people in your life right now that think, there's no way he's going to heaven? God loves and cares for them. Who are the people that we think, oh, that'd be weird if they came through our doors? God loves them, cares for them, and in fact is extending invitations and saying, please, I need you to come. This is why I came down to earth, because I was thinking about you. So I went through what are some type of people who feel like they are beyond the love of God? Um, one, I think some people feel like they're beyond the humans. Uh, the humans. That's a new word, um, just to make it rhyme. No, I'm just kidding. Some feel they're beyond the limits of human love. So some people feel like maybe they're not attractive enough. Maybe they're not talented enough. Maybe they feel like they've had just this weird background. And so people, they always feel like people aren't fully welcoming to them. You know, they always feel like they're that friend that just tags along. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is here for you. Jesus loves you. You are not second class. God cares so deeply for you. And he created you uniquely for a purpose. But some feel like they're addicts who can't be saved. Some in this room feel like I have tried to live this good life and I constantly fail. We have the drug addict, we have the used and abused, we have the emotionally starved, we have those who have been hurt and betrayed. What's so cool, I think if you actually read this, he's talking to those people and he's saying, I'm here for you and I love you and there's nothing you've ever done that will make me not love you. I'm here to offer it to you. Two more groups of people. I think some people feel like they're too evil for forgiveness. Maybe they have a murder in their past. Maybe they're child molesters, serial killers. What's insane to me is when Jesus was on the cross, he was treated as a child molester. Oh, that's so hard to say. But he was punished as one so that those who actually have done that in their past can be completely forgiven and redeemed. Doesn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable? But it's true. That's fascinating. And don't be like, oh, those people, guys, we all got our own stuff. They, they put you on the, they, okay. I don't know where I'm going there, but blah, okay. I think that's so important for us to remember. You, you're never too far gone. The last thing, some of us, and I think those of us who are in church, we just feel like we're not good enough. We're trying to pray a little bit more, trying to worship a little bit more, trying to be a little bit louder, right? We're trying to understand the sermon a little bit more. I'm here to tell you Jesus is here for you. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter your past, all this stuff. I want to end with this, and the music can start coming up. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and following. 
Eugene Peterson paraphrased this, and I think it's so good, and I think it's the heart of the gospel, but importantly, I think it's the heart of this passage. It says this, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and Him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with Himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. I love this message that Jesus healed all these people, said the kingdom is here, started healing people, those who are the outcasts, brings the outcasts on a mountain and says, just listen here. He looks at each person in the crowd and says, and you, I love you. And you are available here. You, I'll, I'll call you a son and daughter of God. You will be comforted. You will experience satisfaction. And I love that now the Holy Spirit is looking at this crowd all the same. And saying, there's a reason I came to earth so that I can bring you with me to heaven. And he's offering hope and love and grace to you now. So I only beg of you, if you feel like you've never received it, today's the perfect day. There's nothing you have to do except to say, I need it. God, I'm not enough, but you're enough. But also, I want to encourage those of us who've been in this for a while. We have started to declare some people aren't worthy of that love. You need to stop. Every single person. And by the way, they don't have to change before they come. I love how Jesus looks at them and says, you're welcome here now. Don't get your act together yet. Don't. Just come now. You're already in the family. You need to remember that and we need to offer that as well to other people. Imagine our city needs that. This gospel love.